Let me ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus in chapter 11. And as you turn to Exodus chapter 11, let me remind you of the scene. We have the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. And God, through Moses, has demanded that Pharaoh let his people go. And Pharaoh has continued to refuse, though God has now rained down nine plagues upon the people of Egypt. After these last two, Egypt is in complete disarray. The Egyptian people are suffering. The Egyptian gods have been revealed as frauds. Pharaoh has been powerless to stop any of it. The God of Moses, Yahweh, Jehovah, He has proven Himself to be the one and only Almighty God. Now when we last left off, the end of chapter 10, Moses was standing in the presence of Pharaoh. Or at this point, it might be better to say, Pharaoh was standing in the presence of Moses. Because Moses is now the more powerful man. But Pharaoh, in his anger, trying to save some vestige of his dignity, had declared to Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. On the day you see my face, you will die. That was an empty threat. Moses wouldn't even take it seriously. After all, it's now been well established that Pharaoh is no longer in control here. God is is in control of the unfolding events here in Exodus. And so Moses replies with a warning and with a prophecy. This was a word letting Pharaoh know that God's patience was at an end and that climactic judgment was coming. Moses' response to Pharaoh is spoken with heavy emotion. You you see the exclamation point in the English translation. Moses says to Pharaoh, As you say, I will not see your face again. And then Moses storms out, slamming the door behind him, leaving Pharaoh in stunned silence. And chapter 10 ends. And chapter 11 begins. Except, that's not quite right. You see, our chapter headings and our verse numbers, these are not part of the original Scripture. It wasn't until the 13th century, the 1200s, that an archbishop named Stephen Langton added the chapter divisions to make our study of Scripture easier. And and I'm thankful he did. I, I, I like chapter divisions in our Bible. It wasn't until 1551 that a man named Robert Estienne created the verse numbering system that we use in our Bibles today. And aren't we thankful that we have chapter and verse so that we can better study the Bible? But sometimes these chapter and verse numbers can get us into trouble. And this is one of those occasions. You see, this scene with Moses standing before Pharaoh that we were looking at at the end of chapter 10, it isn't over. 
You get the impression when you, oh, now new chapter, new scene. But it's not a new scene. Moses didn't walk out. He didn't slam the door behind him. Rather, Moses now adds a parenthesis at the beginning of chapter 11. And then he comes right back to the conversation between him and Pharaoh in verse 4. Whether the parenthesis confused him or some other factor was at play, Langton decided to add a chapter transition right in the middle of the scene. So don't get confused here. The scene is still the same scene. Moses hasn't left the room. He's still standing before Pharaoh. And verses 1 through 3 are a parenthesis helping explain some details that we need to know And then the story keeps going right along with this final confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. So with that being said, now let's read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, remember we are reading the very word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. There, my friends, is the real dramatic exit. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now look with me at chapter 12 and verse 29. Chapter 12 and verse 29. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. 
Now, unlike the other plagues, we will see this plague play out over two chapters and 42 verses. This final tenth plague is important, not only because it is the climactic plague of the ten plagues, but because it is in this plague that the Israelites will experience one of the most important events recorded in human history, an event that we call the Passover. This event is so rich, it's, it's so full of gospel truth, there's so much glory in Exodus 11 and especially 12, and so we're, we're not going to rush through these two chapters, but on this Lord's Day, what I want to do both this morning and this evening is follow the typical outline we've been following as we've studied the ten plagues. And so this morning and this evening, we're going to give kind of a a general look at the tenth plague, and then in later Sundays, we will look more particularly at the Passover and the message of the Lamb and the gospel message that is there. So for this morning, we're going to begin with six observations about this tenth plague. Six observations Warning, we're not going to get through all of them this morning. Six observations about this plague. Number one, God revealed to Moses that this plague would be the final plague. God revealed to Moses, this plague, Moses, is the last one. That's what verses one through three are doing for us. Moses has been coming to Pharaoh at the first plague, at the fourth plague, at the seventh plague. He's been coming to Pharaoh again and again. And suddenly Moses says to Pharaoh, I will not see your face again. How does Moses know that? How does Moses know he's not going to see Pharaoh's face again? Well, in verses 1 through 3, Moses, our writer, adds in this parenthesis giving us the backstory. Uh, In the ESV, the translation says... The Lord said to Moses. It almost seems with that translation that even as Moses is talking with Pharaoh, God is talking to Moses. And some people read it that way. Uh, John Currid is an excellent commentator and uh, uh, scholar on the book of Exodus who, who takes it that way. That even as Moses is talking with Pharaoh, God is speaking to Moses saying, Moses, this is going to be the last plague. You can tell him you're not going to see his face again. More likely, though, is that God had already revealed to Moses that this was going to be the last plague even before he comes in to speak to Pharaoh. Because this verse can be just as easily and accurately translated as the Lord had said to Moses. And what had the Lord said to Moses? Yet one plague more. Just one plague more. I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go out from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. That word plague, we've seen it before. It's literally a blow. It's a stroke. It it refers to God's hand coming down hard upon the Egyptians. And then in verse 2 of chapter 11, we learn something else that God had told Moses probably ahead of time to instruct the Israelites to do. Namely, they were to go to their Egyptian neighbors and they were to say to their neighbors, give us your gold, give us your silver, give us your jewelry and your valuable possessions. Now, why do you think the Egyptians turned over their silver and their gold? Was it the goodness of their heart? 
What if somebody came to your house? Knock, knock, knock. Yes? I'm your neighbor from down the road. Can I have your jewelry? You got a gun? Right? What's happening there? But these plagues had so devastated the Egyptians that now they were in a place of fear. The people are now at a place where they they want the Israelites to get off their back. They're, They're ready to see them go. And so they handed over their valuables. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. I'm reading from Exodus 12, 35, 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked and thus they plundered the Egyptians. So you see, the Israelites are now preparing for Pharaoh's command to leave. The Israelites have heard from Moses, one plague more and we're out of here. So they're beginning to pack, including packing up the possessions of their neighbors. Why is this significant? Well, for one, it explains why these Hebrew slaves are able to come to Mount Sinai with so much silver and gold. Have you ever wondered where did they get that gold to build the golden calf? Right? These were, these, were, these were slaves. Slaves don't have gold. Where did they get the gold? This is where they got it. Where did they get the gold to build the Ark of the Covenant? This is where they got it. They plundered the Egyptians. Uh, more than that, this plundering of the Egyptians is significant because it reminds us that our God is a God who is faithful to His promises. So way back in Exodus 3, so think months ago, Exodus 3, Moses standing at the burning bush, God speaking out of the burning bush. What did God say to Moses? He said this, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So way back before Moses even entered Egypt, God had promised that this would happen. But if you know your Bible well, you know that this promise is actually much, much older than that. Many centuries before, God had made this promise to Abraham while he was still in the land of Canaan. Way back in Genesis 15, when when Abraham is still Abram his name hasn't even been changed yet we read this as the sun was going down a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold dreadful and great darkness fell upon him and then the Lord said to Abram know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not there they will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with many possessions. So our God kept the big promise of rescuing the people out of Egypt, and He also kept the smaller promise of making sure that they did not leave empty-handed. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, I can say this with biblical authority to you. Every promise God has ever made to you both the big ones and the smaller ones. He will keep. Observation number two. Number two. Our second observation is that this plague took place at midnight. 
This plague took place at midnight. We see this in Exodus 11, verse 4. We see it again in Exodus 12, verse 29. The death of the firstborns took place around midnight, or literally in the Hebrew, in the middle of the night. Why is that significant? And it is. It's significant because in Egyptian mythology, it was during the night that the gods of heaven fought. They believed that each evening was a time of battle among the deities. This was the time when the sun god, Re, fought against other gods. And when the morning sun rose, it was proof that their god, Re, had won the victory yet again. Nighttime was the time when the gods fought. How interesting then that this final climactic plague embarrassing and dethroning every power that supposedly protected the Egyptians, it took place in the middle of the night. It's as if the God of Moses went toe-to-toe with the Egyptian gods in the fighting hour, and he took them all down. The Egyptian gods have been tested, and they've been found wanting. They have been utterly defeated. The emperor has no clothes. These gods are revealed to be frauds. Third observation. Third observation. This plague was devastating. This plague was devastating. Chapter 11, verse 5, we read, Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And then in chapter 12, verse 30, we read that Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. We need to take a moment to feel something of the weight and the sorrow of this plague. A mother hears a cry in the middle of the night. She runs to check on her little boy to make sure he's okay in his bed and he isn't moving and he isn't breathing. This was every parent's worst nightmare. A wife rolls over in her bed and notices that her husband's body is cold. She shakes him, but he doesn't stir. He was a firstborn son. Maybe one couple had just welcomed their first child into the world, a beautiful baby boy. And the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. It is no wonder that Exodus 12.30 speaks of a great cry in Egypt. This was the most heart-wrenching, devastating, kick-in-the-stomach night that these people would ever experience. Entire family lines came to an end on this night. Children who were the jewel of their parents, the apple of their eye, were taken away. This plague affected the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor and every person in between. Our passage mentions a mill worker. Mill workers were considered the lowest of the low. They were the bottom rung of Egyptian society, but not even the poorest, not even the neediest Egyptian family was spared. The firstborn 
was the chief heir of the family's property. The firstborn was to be the one who bore the chief responsibility for the family's future and the family's well-being. And now all the firstborns of Egypt are dead. And God did it. The Bible does not wince at this. It does not speak in apologetic or vague terms. It's very clear. God killed these people. So what do you do with that? What do you do with a God like this? This plague raises big questions. This plague raises uncomfortable questions. Uh, One of the most common is, why would a good God kill babies? Surely there were many babies killed in this plague. Why would a good God kill babies? How can you call a God that would do this good? Why would you trust? Why would you sing hymns of praise to a God that would do this? Why firstborn sons? I mean, that certainly seems to be significant. God didn't kill everyone. He selected one group of people, one class of people, firstborn sons. Why Why them? Well, as we continue to work our way through chapters 11 and 12, we're going to take time to answer those questions. And so hang on. There are good answers. There are important answers to those questions that, that we need to hear, and those answers are coming. This morning, let me just answer one more common question about this plague, especially in our modern times. People ask this. Why the animals? Why did God kill the firstborn of the animals? Certainly, this was one reason why every house in Egypt was affected. Uh, Almost every house in Egypt would have owned animals. Uh, Even homes with no firstborn sons would have owned livestock on which these people's lives depended but animals are not sinners animals are incapable of sin even babies we could argue there's something of adam's original sin in the child but but animals they were truly innocent why why would god kill the animals well first and foremost we must remind ourselves that everything on this earth including every creature belongs to god There is not one inch of this universe which was not created by God. He sustains every atom. He sustains every molecule. Every part of this universe from the largest to the smallest exists for Him. This creation, including every creature, belongs to God and He has the right to do with His creation as He pleases. We live in a culture that loves to talk about rights. My rights, your rights, their rights, our rights. Let me tell you whose rights always come first. It's God's right to do as He wills among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. Second, we must remember that death, all death, is a result of man's sin. There would be no death in this world of any kind were it not for us. 
God placed his creation under the dominion of Adam and called for Adam and his children, that's us, to be good stewards of this creation. The animals came to Adam and Adam gave them names. There was a wonderful, peaceful relationship even between Adam and the animals. And as long as Adam would honor and trust the God who made him, life would reign on this planet. But you know what happened. God warned Adam that if he chose to rebel against his maker, the consequence would be death. And it was death not just for man. The entire world came under the curse of death. This world was entrusted to the stewardship of man. When we sinned, that which was under our authority also came under the curse. And thus, because of man's sin, not only do people die, but animals die. And so as terrible as this plague was, we must remember, all God did was fast forward the clock. Not one of those animals was going to live forever. Every one of them was under the curse, brought about because of man's sin. Death was a certainty for each and every person and for each and every animal. God simply brought the curse of death upon these animals sooner than normal. I'll never forget sitting in um, my chair in our apartment in Pascagoula, Mississippi, um, holding a little puppy. We'd gotten this little puppy, and um, it had parvo. Um, and I just held it in my hands and wept as it, as it just lie there dying. Pe- people talk about death being a part of life, death part of the natural order of things. I knew as I watched that little puppy die that death is not part of the natural order of things. It is unnatural. It is terrible. It is, it is not the way things are supposed to be. Death is a curse. Don't follow the world and talking about death is a beautiful thing. That's not the way the Bible talks about it. Death is a curse. Death is, is terrible. It, it, it's meant to show us how terrible our sins really are. Looking back, I see how even that emotional day of, of, of holding that dog as it died was preparing me for the day when I would hold my baby boy and watched as, as he died. We must never treat death as something good or right or beautiful. It is not part of the natural order of things. The Bible calls death an enemy, the last enemy, an enemy so terrible that it took the death of Christ to, be, to bring about the death of death. Before we start pointing fingers at God... Because he caused innocent animals to die, let us remember what it cost God to defeat death for us. As Christians, we have the hope that one day our bodies are going to be raised up. That one day our bodies are going to be made perfect. We're going to live in body and soul as full human beings forever and ever and ever. We just sang it. That we may be with him and never die. What was the cost of that? God sacrificed His one and only Son. The most innocent man who ever lived. 
I, I think about me weeping as I watched my baby boy die. But my love for my son could not compare to the love of God the Father for his beloved son. And yet, in the, this, the love of God was made manifest for us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Next verse, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God knows very well what it's like to have a firstborn son die. God knows the weight of punishing the innocent. Fourth observation. Fourth observation. God spared his people from this terrible plague. God spared his people from this terrible plague. The the plague came upon the Egyptians because of their wickedness, because of their sin, because of how they had abused God's people, because of how they beat them and treated them as second-class citizens and used them for their own purposes and pleasure. And the Hebrews were spared. We're told in 11 verse 7, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Why were the Hebrews spared from this plague? It is not because the Hebrews were somehow less sinful. The Hebrews were not spared from this plague because they were somehow innocent or or not guilty. They deserved this plague as much as anybody does. In fact, we will see once the people of Israel leave Egypt, we're going to see just how messed up the Israelites are. What do we read from, from, once Israel leaves Egypt, what do we read from there all the way through the rest of the Old Testament? This is a messed up, sinful, idolatrous, wicked people. So why weren't they plagued in this way? God says he makes a distinction. Our God is a discriminating God. As Paul will say in Romans 9, he has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens whom he hardens. On what basis does God choose to show mercy to one group and to judge another group? What is the basis of God's decision? Bless this group, protect this group, not save this group, judge this group. What is his basis? The answer is his basis is his sovereign choice, period. What does he say to Israel in Deuteronomy 7? He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, God says to his people Israel, once they're brought out of Egypt, he says, there's no room for boasting. There's no room for, for, for saying, look at how great we are, that the true God would set his love on us and change us and save us. He says, no, there's nothing in you that made the difference. The reason for God's grace towards Israel lies solely in his own sovereign plan which moved him to make a promise to their forefather long before any of them were born. 
Not one Israelite could go out in the streets and dance and celebrate, celebrating the terrible plague that fell on the Egyptians. No, the Israelites deserved this plague too, and it was the sheer mercy of God that they were spared. And God makes that crystal clear because He required them to take the blood of a sacrificial lamb and to apply it to their houses so that their firstborn sons would be spared. Dear Christians in this room, It is sheer sovereign grace that you've been spared the judgment of God. Don't ever look with contempt upon the lost of this world. As we see the lost all around us celebrating their sin, living in immorality, cursing God, disregarding God, don't look upon them with contempt. Look upon them with compassion. There before the grace of God goes I. There before the grace of God goes you. We are the recipients of a sovereign mercy. And it came to us at the cost of a sacrificial lamb. The lamb of God, our Savior. We'll stop with this last fifth observation and it's this. Pharaoh's stubbornness resulting in this tenth plague made Moses righteously angry. Pharaoh's stubbornness resulting in this tenth plague, made Moses righteously angry. We're told, Exodus 11, verse 8, he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Literally, his nose, it said, in the Hebrew, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idiom, his, his nose was up, <laughs> right? You, you picture a, a bull, right, with the smoke coming out. This, this is Moses, he's, he's, he's angry. Why is Moses angry at Pharaoh? He's angry because he knows what's coming. Moses has just told Pharaoh what's about to happen. And Pharaoh could change all of it. If Pharaoh would just put away his willful rebellion and submit to God, all of these lives could be spared. So much trouble could have been avoided if Pharaoh would only have raised up his white flag and surrender to the true God of heaven. The anger of Moses in this moment is the anger of a man frustrated with the insanity of a stubborn, prideful heart. A prideful heart makes you insane. And here we see in Moses the very heart of God Himself. As God would later say through Ezekiel, so Moses is saying to Pharaoh, Repent. Turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel, says Ezekiel. And then God says this, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. That's my message to any among us this morning who has not yet become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I stand here before you this morning as an ambassador of God Himself. This message that I preach, it's not my message. It's God's message. Why will you die? Why would you remain even a moment longer under the curse of God? Why would you leave this place and continue walking a path that leads to hell when God has made a way for your salvation? 
A day of judgment is coming, but a sacrificial lamb has been set for you. Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to make, think, to make it where all you have to do is believe, turn to Christ, follow Him, trust Him, and He gives you peace with God. Hell no longer in your future. Your sins wiped away. Heaven before you. Why would you harden your heart like Pharaoh? Why would you not turn to Christ and follow Him? He is a great Savior. I pray. We, we've now studied ten plagues. And I don't know how you've experienced it. You, you, might, you may, might not have liked our study of these ten plagues. You, you might have liked it. You know, frogs, mosquitoes. You know, it was, it, it was interesting in that way. But you, you might have been thinking it was judgment, 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 judgment. All these sermons on judgment. Dear friend, what a pity it would be for you to have sat through all of these sermons where the message is repent before it's too late and for you still to leave and to not repent. God has been gracious to us in giving us so many warnings. Will you not repent before it's too late and trust Christ? I pray that you will. Let's pray.